Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and we're doing a series on Mormonism, and I have a really special guest. I have Derek R. Sainsbury on the show, and he wrote this amazing book that just came out from BYU and the Religious Studies Center. It's called Storming the Nation, The Unknown Contributions of Joseph Smith's Political Missionaries. Derek, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it was a great book. I really enjoyed it. And before we jump into it, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, like your background, um, your influences? Sure. Um, I grew up in a working class family in uh, the west side of Salt Lake Valley. So born into a a Latter-day Saint home, but we didn't go to church. We weren't um, what they would call active. Um, My parents were divorced when I was 12. I was the oldest of eight. So that was a pretty um, rough start to life. And I bring that up just because the, my senior year in high school, I, um, I was touched by a, a seminary teacher for, um, the LDS church where we have release time seminary, where we get to go across the street and be involved in religious studies. Anyway, he really reached out to me and kind of put me on a, a path that led to to faith and to um, the faith that I have today. And it was about that same time I met a a young girl at my high school who I ended up uh, marrying after I served a Latter-day Saint mission. And, And I just, because of what this seminary teacher had done, his name was uh, Pete Sunwall. I decided when I came back from my mission that uh, I wanted to do for, for others, what he had done for me. And so I entered a, a career in, in seminary for the Latter-day Saint Church, and I've been doing that for 26 years. And so um, that's, that's kind of my background, and a lot of my, my influence comes from, from those things. I, uh, I have a, a bachelor's in political science. I got a, a master's of public administration after that, and then um, I got a Ph.D. in American history. And so, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> Very interesting. That's awesome. Yeah, I just got to say, you know, even though you're a faithful Latter-day Saint and you, you, you do talk about that in, your, in, the, in the beginning of your book, um, also, I just really appreciated how balanced you were in your book as well. And I think you strike a very healthy balance uh, because you can tell that you're faithful, but at the same point, you're objective. And I, I, I just I just really appreciated that in the book and it, it, it comes off very well on the tone. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I was I had a really good set of uh, professors when I got my PhD who I think did a pretty good job of training me. So I'll, I'll give them all the credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So is that how you got interested in Mormon history, your background, you know, w- with doing seminary? Because now you teach seminary for the church. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And in fact, on July 1st, I'm headed down to BYU 
um, oh great involved in their religious department for a few years so so oh, yeah i'm excited about that too well actually right. the, the whole history thing started with my dad um i don't i don't know remember much about my dad but he did give me a love for military history i can remember by the time i was 10 years old that i had several books on pearl harbor and i could tell you which battleship sank and and which didn't and that kind of stuff and and then in high school, I had a, I ended up getting a, a, a Mrs. Peacock for, for history, both as a sophomore and a senior. And I wasn't the greatest uh, and most well-behaved student, but she was really patient with me and uh, kind of reached out to me. And I fell in love with history in general, not just military history. And I remember making a goal after I graduated from high school that I was going to get a PhD in history, but um I didn't know if that would ever happen. That was good. You know, it was one of those kind of goals that, you know, I come from a working class family. I'm not even sure, you know, how much education I'm going to get, so forth and so on. So I did. I got a, a PhD in that. And so when I when I came home from uh, serving my my mission, um, I, like I said, I started working in religious education and my love for history was, you know, just easily intersected with um with the faith that I had, uh, that I had found for myself, but also uh, in the interest of being able to teach uh, others about um, events in in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Awesome. So then, how so how did you get interested in Joseph Smith's uh, political run for uh, the U.S. presidency? So I was a poli sci, a big poli sci guy in uh, in my undergraduate, and I remember reading somewhere that Joseph Smith had run for president. And in my kind of young adult, naive, young, uh, young in the faith kind of um, mindset, I, I was like, well, if he did, why didn't he run? He was, wasn't he a prophet? And, and then I thought, well, wait a second, why is he even running for president? Isn't the church politically <laughs> neutral? What, I mean, what's going on here? And so it wasn't a faith crisis. But it, it bothered me, and I looked around and tried to find material on it. You know, this is in the early 90s, and I, I, I couldn't find much. And over the years, as I went through, I, I always looked for stuff, and there was a little bit here and there, but nothing really that satisfied what I, what I wanted to know. So when I started my Ph.D., uh, I had a, that first year, I had a graduate paper I had to do. In a, in a seminar, and uh, my professor, I, I said, "Hey, I want to do more on this. I want to figure out some stuff here with Joseph Smith's missionary, or excuse me, with his campaign, his presidential campaign." And he he made the, a wise comment to me to to look at the missionaries. We knew that he'd send out three hundred some odd missionaries, and so he said, "Look at them and see what they did." And so I did, and I started finding more and more and more of them. And, uh, I did, you know, I did the paper and that paper turned into a dissertation that, you know, because of some health issues in my family, uh, went on for more than a decade before I was able to finish my dissertation. And, um, I kind of found the answers I was looking for and, and found some things I think are important, um, for both Latter-day Saint and American history. And, so when I was done with my dissertation, I took a, a couple of years to 
to start cobbling it together as a book. And so that's, that's where it comes from. Oh, awesome. Now I'm ex- I was excited to read it because, you know, I, Joseph Smith's, uh, pre- uh, run for the U S presidency has been kind of a popular topic. I've heard Spencer McBride that works for the church history department. He's wrote a book for Oxford on Joseph Smith's uh, run for president, but yours was a unique take on it because you're talking about the political missionaries or the electioneers that go out for Joseph Smith, which I thought was a really interesting take. And I don't think anyone has ever talked about it. Am I correct? There, there was a, a, a small article done in, Oh, I want to say 2000, maybe 1999. Anyway, that, uh, talked a little bit about the missionaries and but didn't uh, didn't really come to any conclusion other than they just acted like missionaries of that time for the for the Mormon church. And so other than that no there hasn't been anything done on the missionaries and of course my work has totally changed the narrative about that because not only because of the number of missionaries but um actually following who they were before the mission what they actually did on the mission during the campaign and then their actions after the campaign. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the really great things about your book is just kind of taking you through that, you know, before, after the death, and then after the death of Joseph Smith and afterwards, and how how their their uh, their religious views and their political views helped shape who they became and how it shaped the church even after Joseph Smith's death. It was a really a fascinating account. Yeah, I, it's... I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then for our listeners, for people who may not even have known that Joseph Smith ran for president, uh, he ran for president in 1844, correct? That's so correct. why did he run for president? Let's just start off the bat with that. So what even possesses Joseph Smith, this Mormon prophet, to run for president of the United States? You know, and that's the question most people ask me, right, when when uh, when we talk about it. And so... It's a great question and kind of what brought me down this path in the first place. The reality is, is that Joseph Smith, his restoration movement, his the church that he that he founds, has this idea of a Zion, a Zion society that's very different from the Christianity of that day and our day for that matter, because it's very holistic. It's not just about uh, religious principles. It's about social principles. It's about economic principles. It's even about political or governing principles. And as he and his followers try to um, try to create this Zion society, it conflicts with other American citizens, especially on the frontier, who were in the first place uh, very very different from. Uh, uh, Mormons who are coming from, from mostly from New England. And so in Missouri, uh, you get this conflict between those who are Mormon and those who are non-Mormon because of this Zion uh, quest, if you will. And that, that conflict leads to the, the Latter-day Saints being expelled from Jackson County and losing their land and their property. And Joseph obviously is is distraught about this, and he uh, he receives revelations about what to do next. And those revelations tell him to seek redress from the government, from every level of the government, to uh, vote for good, honest, and wise. Those are the words in the revelation: good, honest, and wise people, and also 
that the liberties of the Constitution, um, they are supposed to uh, defend, they're supposed to have, regardless of being uh, a minority group. And so that's what they do for a decade. They, they try to uh, get redress from local, from state. And even he goes to the White House uh, famously in 1839, 1840, and talks with President Van Buren and gives um, uh, memorials to both uh, the House and the Senate. And nobody is helping in any branch of government at any level. Which you know is is kind of um, distressing for them, and so when they start over again in Illinois, uh, they're they're trying again to create this society, and they feel like they can do it better now that they have some some safeguards of their own, their own city charter, their own militia, so forth and so on. Well, it still doesn't work out. They're still conf- you know they're still confrontation between Zion society they want to create and what the American frontier really is, you know, communitarian versus individualistic. And so as he starts to see, this is Joseph, as he starts to see the storm clouds on the horizon again, he writes the five potential candidates for presidency or for the upcoming presidential election. Uh, what would be their stance if, if they won? towards the Mormons. And only three of them reply. None of the replies offer any help. And Mm -hmm. so in January 29th, or on January 29th of 1844, uh, he and other church leaders decide to run him as an independent candidate for president of the United States. Now, at this same time that this is happening, he's also um, declaring revelations about divine governance. And he's really tying uh, politics and religion together um, in public discourse and private discourse leading up to, in this same time period in 1844, the creation of the Council of Fifty, which was uh, a confidential secret council of men that considered themselves to be the kingdom of God on earth to try and bring good government to earth. And so you have both of these strands, this divine governance coming out of Zion, and then what to do in reaction to Zion causing conflicts, right, with neighbors. And both of those strands kind of come together and lead to this presidential campaign and to the church going all in on the presidential campaign in 1844. Very interesting. So you talk about Joseph Smith's ideas about kind of like a religious slash political a system of government. And I believe in your book, you called that a theodemocracy. Is that correct? Yeah, that's his word, actually. Okay. So what is a theodemocracy? What was Joseph Smith advocating? Well, he, he, he defined it as, in one sentence, as where God and the people hold the power to conduct the affairs of men in righteousness. That's pretty vague. But uh, basically what it means is that, um, you know, instead of sovereignty lying with the people, as it is in the United States, sovereignty lies with God and the people share that with God through uh, the leaders that God calls. And so, you know, to, to, it's kind of parsing words in some sense. It's, it's very basically, um, you know, look on the outside looking in, someone's going to call it uh, a theocracy, right? A straight theocracy. What Joseph 
meant by the democratic part of it is that he believed that people would accept governance from good people because of the unity and the um, and the prosperity or whatever you want to call it that would come from that government. Um, there was a kind of a, a political attitude of the time that called Aristarchy, um, which is defined as uh, good men in power or government by excellent men. And because of all of the things they had gone through, they were very disillusioned with uh, the government at all levels. And so it's, it was kind of natural for them to want to, to look for government that's good and not corrupt. And, and in the end, right, um, from the outside, people looking at this uh, are going to look at it as, oh, my goodness, you know, th- th- this, is, this is the union of church and state. This is theocracy. From their point of view, from the, from the Latter-day Saints point of view on the inside, they're looking for a way to be able to secure the liberties that have been denied them. But also, they believe in this mission of, of, uh, of preparing the world for the return of Jesus Christ. And so you've got this kind of serious tension going on between the, the two groups and between the two ideas of, of democracy and theocracy. And Joseph tries to kind of split it down the middle. Um, but obviously it doesn't work. Very interesting. Yeah. And there was another term you used throughout your book called uh, aristarchy, right? Right. Yeah. And what is that for just so the listeners can understand? So that's the, the idea of, um, it's different from aristocracy, right? So aristocracy is, is government where power is, is vested in men that are distinguished by their social rank and opulence, their, their rank and their wealth. And it's inherited, Right. Think, uh, think of monarchies and think of uh, the House of Lords in England and, and dukes and so forth and so on. Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, talked about a natural aristarchy, or excuse me, a natural aris, aris, aristocracy, right? Mm-hmm. But not based on birth or on wealth, but on virtue and talents. And so aristarchy is kind of a, a close cousin to that idea. And it's government by excellent men, by good men. So not just um, talented, but but good, wise, honest. Those those words that Joseph uh, gives in in his revelation about that. And so um, the idea is that he wants to uh, to create this aristarchic theodemocracy, or this government ruled by good, excellent men that he believes the people will, you know, assent to and, and follow. And he doesn't even expect, uh, you know, the people to the people of the United States to necessarily even uh, join the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, he believes that, um, that what he's offering will be good for all people. Right. And, uh, and he's very clear about that over and over again. Uh, the idea of guaranteeing the rights of all and that's what he's worried about. He and obviously other populations and other groups of people in that time in the American Republic that were that were kind of under the rule of major, uh, majority tyranny. Oh, this is intriguing stuff, Derek. So, so now that we've kind of set the groundwork for why Joseph Smith ran for president, some of his main political ideas and his religious ideas, 
why did the, these missionaries and these uh, political electioneers get behind Joseph Smith? Was it because they truly believed in his his political religious ideas? Was there something more to it? Well, I think that, that first of all, they believed he was a prophet, right? And so um, they believed that he is speaking as as God's prophet on earth. And so if he's saying that he's doing this, um, for most of them, they're going to get on board uh, just because of that. But they're also, you've got to remember that they're also, you know, m- a lot of these people have suffered and suffered and lost everything and had uh, friends and family killed or die from exposure or whatever. They've been kicked around the United States and they're tired of it. And so uh, they, they're also, you know, ready to... <laughs> ready to do this because they're looking for what they believe are the rights that have been kept from them. And so you you get this interesting combination of politics and religion. um, And they, they end up believing, right, that they're offering the nation both spiritual and political salvation, right? That the nation, just like, you know, every generation does, says the nation's in peril and you know, you hear a lot of people talking about that right now, that, that the nation's going to fall apart and we need to get rid of corrupt government and so forth and so on. Well, they were saying the same things back then. And these men who, uh, who volunteer to serve these missions, they're ready foot soldiers for this because they, you know, for the most part, they've experienced the, the loss of rights that, um, that the church has experienced. And, you know, the interesting thing in my research for me was how many I kept finding, right? Uh, before before my research, we, we thought there was little over 350 that, that were involved. And I'm up to 621. Oh, wow. Um, and I stopped, you know, because of sanity and lots of other. I'm, I'm, I did a pretty <laughs> exhaustive look, you know, in people's journals and newspaper accounts and and so forth and so on. I'm not sure there's a lot more out there, but here and there, there probably are a few. But the but that's um, it's the biggest missionary force Joseph Smith ever sends out. In fact, there's not another missionary force of 600 out at the same time again until 1905. Hmm. And as far as a percentage of eligible men that could go on missions, there's never been and never will be, I imagine, another missionary force like it. And so, you know, the, the date that the, that the majority of them were called at, general, at the General Conference of the Church in April, the, the record talks about a, a, a shout after Joseph is, after they, you know, volunteer and Joseph is nominated publicly to be candidate for President of the United States. They talk about a shout that, that echoes off the bluffs there in, in Nauvoo. And they're, you know, they're ready to go and they're equipped too. I mean, they, they're, they're taught, the leaders of the church teach them to how to politic and how to, um, to, to teach both religion and politics. They are given a political pamphlet that Joseph Smith has created called General, General Smith's um, Powers or uh, General Smith's Powers. I can't remember what it's called now. <laughs> oh, views. Sorry, <laughs> General Joseph Smith's views on the powers and policy 
of the United States government, which is basically Joseph's platform, right? And so they've got that. They're passing that out every day in the mission field. It's been mailed to newspapers that are reprinting it. Um, so they, they've got, you know, they've got hard, hard evidence, hardcore evidence that this is not just a, you know, a symbolic run. This is, he's out there to try and, and win hearts and minds and, and try and get protection for his people. Oh, wow. This is really great stuff, Derek. Yeah. So now that, now that we've talked about that. So after Smith's martyrdom, Joseph Smith is murdered, you know, in cold blood in 1844 at Carthage jail. You know, that must've been such a huge letdown for these, for these electioneers as you're talking about, because they're rearing to go. How does this change them? And how does this like change and evolve their, their mission after when they hear Joseph Smith dies? Yeah. Uh, you know, Joseph Smith becomes the first presidential candidate in the United States history to be, to be assassinated. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it is a conspiracy to assassinate him and there are some political undertones. And then that's the way, you know, that leaders of the church and these missionaries look at it too. They look at it as Joseph's assassination was the rejection by the United States of, you know, political and religious salvation. And it hits them hard. You know, in those, in those days, the news, depending on where they were, it would be a week, sometimes two and a half weeks before they found out what had happened. And for me, this is the most powerful chapter in the book, is this chapter about the assassination. Because when they find out, you know, and they're spread, right? They're spread everywhere from Louisiana to Maine. And when they find out, it's devastating. They're just you know, how could this happen? Right. And, um, most of them end up, um, returning to Nauvoo. Some decide to stay out and campaign for, or not campaign, but just continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ rather than campaign for, for another amount of uh, months or even a year before they come back. But most of them come back to Nauvoo and, um, there's a change. There's, they have this shared trauma, right. Of being out there preaching the gospel that came from this prophet and preaching him for president of the United States. And that was a difficult thing to do, right? I mean, they, they stepped into, uh, the political sphere fully advocating that kind of, you know, merger. And so, it was actually surprising how much success they did get in spots, but they also generated a lot of opposition and they're, you know, they've left families behind to do this and they've worked hard and, and now he's been killed and it just, it just absolutely devastates them. But, you know, the quorum of the 12 apostles, which is the next level of leadership in the church, they had been out there with these men, right? They'd been out there electioneering and, 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 with them and conferencing with them. And so it's only natural, you know, we, we, there's a lot of studies about shared trauma, right. About how it, it, uh, it, uh, creates bonds of in relationship, strong bonds of relationship. And these men overwhelmingly uh, are loyal to, uh, to Brigham Young and the Quorum of the 12 apostles after the martyrdom, when there's this succession crisis, Right overwhelmingly they stay with uh, with the the 12 when uh, and come out west eventually whereas you know the estimates are about a half of 
Latter-day Saints around the country actually do that. And, and they're more closer to 80%. And so obviously by volunteering, they were already fully engaged to go out and do this, but there's also something about what happened out there that really steals inside them this desire to create Zion, to create this Zion theodemocracy. And if America doesn't want it, you know, we're out of here, <laughs> which is basically <laughs> what they do. And we'll go, we'll go create it somewhere else. And again, which is exactly what they do. Yeah. That was a really interesting part of your book, just to kind of see that zeal that they had. And I, that's the, that's the mentality I got too, is that if they just didn't, if, if America couldn't appreciate what Joseph Smith was doing, then by golly, they're just going to leave the union. And that's, like you said, that's where they went to, they, which is now Utah territory. So, which was Mexico <laughs> at the time. <laughs> so they just completely leave. It's their, it's the Mormon exodus out. So it's really fascinating to see what happens to these political missionaries as they move out west. Uh, would you mind highlighting some of these like themes and the, or the contributions of these people that your book covers? Yeah, absolutely. The, the thing that surprised me the most is I tried to create this collective biography of these men and one woman, by the way, um, <laughs> was that my goodness, more of them came West. And then I started to look deeper and deeper and saw that they are chosen for leadership positions way out of proportion to their percentage of total uh, men that could be chosen for leadership positions. And this starts right away. This starts right in the fall of 1844 when assignments are made for um, for several different organizations, for several different church mission things. From there, through taking the people across the plains into Utah, into Utah Territory, like you said, which was Mexico at the time, and basically, um, Brigham Young, he, he says that we're going to complete Joseph's measures, meaning Joseph's plan for this theodemocratic Zion. And so they go out there. There's no other um, white culture out there to deal with. And so they create from scratch this aristarchic theodemocracy. I mean, when I say they, I mean Brigham Young and the church leadership. And it's interesting that the leaders, the next level of leaders below them that they chew, that they choose are, you know, again, this group of political electioneers are chosen to do that far out of proportion to their actual percentage of the general male priesthood. And so that's that's fa that was fascinating to me, but it, it, it makes sense, right? I mean, these were men who already believed in Zion. They already had worked for and sacrificed for theodemocracy. They'd had this traumatic experience that kind of bound them to that idea and also to the leadership of the apostles. So, and had put them in the orbit of those apostles, right? The, the social orbit of those apostles. So it does kind of make sense that that's what would happen when they came out West. And what I mean by creating this theodemocracy, they're they're building society, you know, from from the ground up. And so, if you were if you were the religious leader in a community, you were also uh, elected. I put in quotes to be the political leader of that community, which also meant if you're the leader of that community, as the Latter Day Saints were practicing plural marriage, that you were expected to be. Uh, to marry plurally, 
and have more than one wife, which also meant that you were given under their land rules more land, which also then meant that you had uh, more economic power, not only through being given more land, but also because you were connected to these other men from the mission and other men in this uh, wider uh, framework of leadership. And so, I mean, it goes from the top all the way down. So you got Brigham Young, right, who's president of the church, but he's also governor of the territory, right? You have apostles who are apostles of the church, but they're also in the territorial council and the territorial uh, legislature. In the sense, and even, I mean, the first four apostles called after in the, in the 1840s are all electionary missionaries, right? The state mm-hmm. presidents that are called all electionary missionaries. The, 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 the majority of the, uh, the bishops, electionary missionaries. And so like in a town, let's say like Provo, which was actually a wild town back then. It wasn't the Utah County that people talk about today. It was where the misfits went, right? <laughs> it was, uh, if you were, the, if you were the, the bishop of Provo, you were also the mayor of Provo, right? And so they create this theodemocracy that they believed the United States had rejected out there. And these missionaries are, are these former electioneers are, are filling those, uh, those positions at a much, much, much higher rate than their, uh, than their peers. And uh, therefore, they have a huge influence on what happens for the rest of the 19th century inside the church and in both the, you know, in the religious and in the political, economic, and social spheres of the church. Yeah. I think that's one of the greatest contributions of your book is just seeing how much Joseph Smith's political run influenced the church after his death. That was something that, at least for me studying Mormonism, it's not something that you, I had even really ever thought of. And your book is, is, that's one of the main points of the book is just seeing that huge influence and how it shapes the church moving forward as they move out West. Really great stuff. Yeah. Like I said, I, I just, I, it took a lot. One of the reasons it took so many years was finding out all the information on, on all the different missionaries, you know. And so uh, when I originally turned the book manuscript in, it was like uh, I, had, I hadn't been told by the publisher how many pages, right? So mm-hmm. I threw it in. It was 650, and I felt that was too short, you know. And uh, <laughs> they're like, oh, no, that's going to be under 400. And so um, the, what I've got there in the, in the book is just a portion of you know, all of the stories and, and uh, the statistics and so forth and so on that just show this amazing story um, that I think, you know, is important, should be important to Latter-day Saints, but it's also part of American history. I mean, how many other campaigns do you know of where they're advocating their religious leader to, you know, to be the prophet and president, you know, of the country? <laughs> Right, for sure. And I, I mean, and you had even said in your book, which I thought was nice too, you kind of had even said that it, it was, uh, I think it was serendipitous or providential that you had waited all those years because it took you a long time to do the research, understandably. But also, I mean, look at everything that's been coming out, especially with, right. you know, the church history library with everything that they have, the Joseph Smith papers. So it was yes. great that it was great that, you know, you were kind of, a, it took you that long because a lot of stuff came out as well that you were able to use. Yeah, a funny story with that actually is when I first started this, um, 
I was uh, brave enough, if you will, to ask the church, uh, one of the workers at the church history library for the cancel of 50 minutes. And he told me, you know, we don't even know if they exist. Right. And this was like 2005. So about 2010, this is, well, that's what he told me. I don't know if he was lying or not, but that's what he told (laughs) me. In 2010, I asked, I got the courage up to ask him again. And this time he didn't say that they didn't have them. They just said that they're that the first they're in the first presidency vault and we and we don't have access to them. I was like, mm, you know, and they'd had this for all Mormon studies uh, people. They'd always had this mystical, you know, we know they're there. What what's in it, you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> and um, I finished my dissertation right about the time that they announced that they were going to that they were going to publish them. And I, I could remember all of my Mormon studies friends that day, we were just, our jaws were on the floor that, uh, that they were going to do this. And, and, uh, and then one day, you know, there I was holding them, you know, when I'd asked uh, years earlier and told they didn't even exist. And when I got, I, I, I tell you, I read that whole thing in one day and I, cause I was so excited, but what was interesting for me in that is that, it only for me confirmed and deepened what I had already written in my dissertation about how serious uh, they were taking this presidential run. And in fact, it was more serious than I, than, than I had even argued in my dissertation. And so you're right. It was very providential because I had that to, to use in my book. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I, I, I remember the, the hype when, when everyone was saying that the Council of 50 Minutes were being published. It was great stuff. And at that point, it was like, hey, if they're going to publish the Council of 50 Minutes, there's nothing they can't publish at this point. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that was the holy grail. Yeah. So that was, that, that, was, that was really great. So awesome, Derek. I mean, I, I just kind of emphasize to the listeners enough. It's a really great book. And not only that, it's, I mean, if it's a, it's a very readable book and what Derek does and something that I appreciate about it is the biographical sketches. I love biography and he, he introduces a lot of biographical sketches at the end of the book, talking about these electioneers and, you know, their lives. So you kind of get a personal sense for them as well. It's not just, you know, the political and the religious themes. It's you, you have a healthy mix of everything. So it was good. And even the the story about Nancy, uh, Nancy Tracy, you know, the one election, the one female electioneer, that was, that was a really interesting story as well. So, I mean, I just, I think people definitely need to pick up the book, especially if they're interested in, you know, uh, mid 19th century politics. I mean, it was, it was, as your book shows, the Joseph Smith's run for presidency had a huge impact, not only on the church, but on the country as well. And I think it's, right. it's definitely worth reading. You know, and, and one thing I, I, like you mentioned at the back of the book, I have the list of 621 missionaries and on my website, stormingthenation.com, I'm slowly releasing biographies of all of them um, that, that people can go and look at. Oh, and great. So, because I've got, you know, all this information and I just, you know, I just kind of uh, I'm slowly putting it out. And also I've got um, three, this my social media accounts on Instagram and uh, Twitter and Facebook, Storming the Nation. I'm actually live posting the campaign as it's happening. In other words, yesterday was June 1st, right? And so I posted what happened on June 1st, 1844 in the campaign. And so I've been doing that since January 29th. So you can, you know, people that are interested can jump on there and follow the rest of the campaign through, through July. And I'm putting a lot more obviously there too, a lot of information that I just couldn't fit in the book. And so 
there's some great stories that don't get in the book that have already gone up on uh, on social media. So if you're really interested in that stuff, that's a good place to go look. Awesome. That's really exciting. Yeah. Thanks for telling us. So Derek, what, what's going on in your life now? What do we, what do we, uh, uh, what can we expect to learn from you in the future? I'm, uh, I'm working on several papers and conferences that kind of flesh out, um, some other aspects of this, of this story with the electioneers, Joseph Smith papers, uh, BYU's religious educator, several other conferences. So that's kind of what I'm, uh, I'm kind of wrapping up with right now. I've already started, uh, started kind of cobbling together a, an outline for my next book, um, that I'm really excited about. And, um, it's using uh, Joseph Smith again as an assassinated candidate, but also looking at the other assassinated candidate in the history of the United States, which is Robert Kennedy. Mm. And um, I'm doing some interviews with uh, with supporters of, of uh, Bobby Kennedy and how they felt, you know, when he was assassinated and how how they reacted to that to kind of compare and contrast with uh, the story of Joseph's electioneers. And, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to do a, kind of do a, a dual biography that, that kind of leads these, kind of leads the reader through these men's lives, the similarities and the big differences and up through their campaigns and assassinations and, and the aftermath, uh, that both, that both assassinations leave, um, in, in American history. So I'm really excited about that. And, It'll be a few years, I'm sure, but uh, I'm excited to be doing it. Wow, that sounds brilliant. All right, I, I can't wait to read that one, too. We'll have to have you back. Thank you. Yeah, that absolutely. sounds great. Awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Derek, thank you so much. Again, this is just a great book. It's called Storming the Nation, The Unknown Contributions of Joseph Smith's Political Missionaries. I'm talking with Derek R. Sainsbury. Uh, his book was published by BYU in the Religious Studies Center. Again, a great book, a great publisher, and a great author. So, Derek, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel.